Amen. Let us turn in the Word of God this morning to Isaiah chapter 25, the prophet Isaiah chapter 25. That's our Old Testament reading, and our New Testament reading, and our text, John chapter 2, 1 through 11. Isaiah 25, while you're turning there, I want to extend my thanks to the session for their invite and the wonderful privilege to be with you all and minister God's holy word to you. It's always a joy to serve God in this place with you. Isaiah chapter 25, the word of our God. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For if you made a city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, the foreigner's palace is a city no more, it will never be rebuilt. Therefore strong peoples will glorify you, cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a, strong, a stronghold to the needy in his distress a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against the wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken." It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God, we have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in this place, as straws trampled down in dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads out his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands and the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, to the dust. Amen. John, the gospel according to John, the beloved apostle, disciple of our Savior, John chapter 2. Reading verses 1 through 11. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. 
Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to, his, to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The grass withers and the flowers of the fields, they all wither. But the word of our God, it endures forever and ever. And this is God's holy word. Let us pray. Will God come upon us now in the power of your spirit, manifest your glory to us so that we might believe and all the praise to you. Lift high our Savior in our midst, we pray, that salvation might be known here and throughout all the earth. Amen. Please be seated. Some of the most joyful occasions outside of the regular gathering of God's people on the Lord's Day are weddings, which the Lord's Day most beautifully points us forward to. I often look back at my own wedding and to my beautiful bride and the, wedding of our ch- the weddings of our children, of our extended family, and church family with great delight and joy. It's such a wonderful, glorious occasion. In our living room, we have six canvases of the weddings in our family. And then in our dining room, if that wasn't enough, we have six portraits of the brides in our family as a reminder of the very good gifts of our God. Very good gifts to us from our loving Heavenly Father. Already in the garden, God has traced out his love for us and graced our parents with the glorious relationship between a man and a woman. A picture of the spiritual relationship that the church has with our Savior, Christ Jesus. And in this narrative before us, John shows us the bridegroom. Now John will continue to teach us of the bridegroom in the next chapter, but here he presents to us the bridegroom, the one who has come down from heaven and he seeks a bride. And here in our passage, he is honoring then the institution of marriage by his presence. But what's more? The bridegroom doesn't receive gifts, as is our custom. The bridegroom gives gifts. He gives gifts. 
that which the joy of the prophets was to proclaim, or it did proclaim in the Old Covenant as we have read from Isaiah, that when the kingdom of God would come, when it would be inaugurated, then it would be like outpoured wine, well-aged wine, bringing joy to the people of God. So this morning, to get to the heart of the wedding, we're going to look at three things. First, we'll consider a great need. Second, we'll consider a divine beverage. And third, a glorious future. A great need, a divine beverage, and a glorious future. First then, a great need. It appears that Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus, had some responsibility. She's working in the church here, and she's organizing this wedding, and perhaps just the catering of this occasion, the wedding of Cana of Galilee. And we're noted here by the Apostle John that Jesus was, her son, was invited to the wedding, and also these recent disciples that Jesus has just selected in chapter 1. They have come now to the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Mary thought it would be most convenient to have her son at the wedding because if there was a problem, well, he might help. And there was a problem, a major problem. They ran out of wine. The couple's wedding was likely to be the greatest event of their entire marriage, perhaps lasting as long as a week in those days, and thus an occasion that is well planned. But sometimes things are overlooked. Perhaps there are more guests that have come. We've been at a wedding just to come to the reception, and the food was already gone. And perhaps that was the occasion here, or just an oversight We don't know. John doesn't tell us. All he tells us was that there was no more wine. When the wine ran out, wasn't that there was any, but there was no longer any. And in that culture, to run out of wine would be a great embarrassment to the groom. And so Mary, what does she do? Well, she goes to her son and says to Jesus, they have no wine. What was Mary expecting when she voiced her complaint? Well, from verse 5, it seems as if she was expecting that Jesus would do something about the situation. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. But from Jesus' reply, we learn that she sought to influence her son, our Lord himself, to control him. Woman, Jesus replies, what, do you, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, there's always a lot of talk when we get to this reply of our Lord Jesus. There's always a lot of talk. What does this mean? Well, we can positively assure ourselves here that our Lord Jesus Christ was not being nasty to his mom. 
Not at all. He wasn't being disrespectful. He wasn't being rude to his mother. How do we know? Because he is Jesus. He is God incarnate. He cannot sin. He is pure love. So what was Jesus saying then? Well, this is for sure, though, a mild rebuke from our Savior to his mother so that she would no longer treat him as his little boy, her little boy. Mary must no longer think of him as being merely her son, but her Lord. Now, you can imagine how difficult this was for Mary or would be. She bore him. She nursed him. She taught him his A, B, and C's. Her life was bound up in this boy. And now he has grown. And now Jesus says to her, to his mother, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. But she's seen now He has come, he has entered into the purpose for his coming, his ministry. In fact, Jesus' words, my my hour has not yet come, shows us that he is conscious as the Son of God and the Son of Mary that the fact that he was about to do the task of his father was upon him. He realized that he was just baptized by the Holy Spirit, inaugurated for holy ministry. And he had a certain calling that he had to fulfill. And he was about then his father's business, that long-awaited, uh, uh, the long-awaited Messiah. And thus, any aspect of that ministry could never be in response to human schedules. Jesus is saying very clearly here to his mother, to his family, my schedule is my father's schedule. It's not circumstantial. It is to do, as he said, my father's will. Now that's what's indicated by this word, our, in John's gospel. It's a key word, and it's used actually seven times. This is the beginning, John is intimating to us, of Christ's revelation of his glory as the God-man in the flesh, the incarnate Son of God. And it's quite typical of Jesus, as we know as we read the Gospels, to detect a deeper meaning than just the speaker had imagined. Remember, just a little later in John's Gospel, how he spoke of himself as the temple. Destroy this temple in three days, God will raise it up. Everyone thought he was talking about a physical temple, and he was talking about himself. Well, Jesus here remembers what the prophets characterized the messianic age to be like a time when the wine would flow freely, liberally. In Hosea chapter 14, the prophet speaks in this way, They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. 
They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Amos chapter 9 verse 14. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And not only that, but Jesus sees himself as the messianic bridegroom who will supply that wine. He not only speaks of the prophets who spoke of the wine, the people of God enjoying the wine, but he is the one who will supply all the wine that is needed for the great messianic banquet. But his hour has not yet come. So how does Mary respond? Well, she says to the servants, verse 5, do whatever he tells you. Now that's a beautiful response of faith. It's beautiful, simple, it's humble, and it's expectant. She knew who he was, but she understood it was not her place to command him to do things. But now she's perfectly complete, or content rather, perfectly content to leave the matter into Jesus' hands. What a beautiful thing. And this is a wonderful encouragement for you and me this morning, isn't it? Just do what Jesus says. When difficulties arise in our lives, and they do in all of our lives to some extent, some larger, some smaller, some greater, some less, we realize that the circumstance, just like this one, no wine has been ordained by God to be used to direct our eyes to him. He wants to take our eyes off of the things of this world, of the circumstance itself, and turn to him who alone is able to help. Faith then, as we are taught here, faith then commits the matter at hand to the one who is able to help. And as the scriptures abundantly teach us, not only who is able to help, but the one who is willing to help us, our Lord Jesus Christ. And like Mary here, we do well. We do well to do the same. To put our trust in the God who is able to help. As the psalmist so frequently speak of the task of the servant to look to the hand of the master, to wait patiently upon the Lord. As we sung this morning, and he will hear us. This poor man cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard him. So there is a problem, a great need, the wine has run out. And that is a big problem. But John gives us more insight to the problem. It's not just that there's no wine to drink, you see. At this wedding feast, John tells us there are some other things there, particularly six stone 
water jars. And those water jars were used for the Jewish rites of purification. And you know, if you read the scriptures and you know the Gospels, that the Jews and the Judaism of that day, they were obsessed with the ceremonial cleanliness. And in Mark's Gospel, for instance, he tells us, he explains, he says, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. Now, in the context of the wedding feast, perhaps the certain utensils and the guests' hands were to be washed in these stone pots. But these stone pots, though, give us a clue to the meaning of this narrative. The problem was that the tradition of the Pharisees, of the Jews, of cleansing did not include the cleansing of the heart. It was an outward show that lacked the inward power to transform the entire person. There they were, stone pots filled with water. Outwardly, their hands would be cleansed, but inwardly, sepulchers, our Lord, would speak of them. Jews, is it? It's a current problem. How many people refer them to themselves and of themselves as Christians? They have a form of godliness, but there's no power. There is no power. They deny its truth and its power, 2 Timothy 3.5. They disregard the Bible's teaching on sin, on the law, on the atoning blood of our Lord Jesus, his resurrection, the empowering power of the Holy Spirit, and the work of the Holy Spirit. There is a form. They go through the motions, but there's no power. There's no truth, and there's no power. They go to the church each Lord's Day out of custom, but they leave, having never worshipped God having never enjoyed communion with the only and true God of heaven and earth. Rather, through the service, they're thinking what they will be doing that afternoon. The Bible has its place on our coffee tables, but not in our hearts or lives. And perhaps this is true of some of you this morning just going through the motions, doing what you have to do or need, know you need to do, but there's no power. There's no power of the Spirit. It hasn't affected your heart or your life hasn't changed you at all. And this is where as pastors and elders, we, we speak with people and we minister to them, we pastorally minister to them. And they come across these difficulties in their lives and they come for advice and we speak to them about the Holy Spirit. They refer to themselves as Christians and we understand as, as we can only see their or hear their testimony that they're members of good standing of the church. And yet, they 
do not have the power. It's all outward, not inward. How do we know? Because there's no sanctifying grace. The same old problems return. There's no grace and sanctifying grace of the Holy Spirit so that we might put sin to death. There's no progressive sanctification. And we see that because it's just outward. Their hearts are like these vessels. Vessels of stone. Stone cold. Or using John's terminology, there's no wine. There's no wine. So John shows us the human need and the desperate situation at the wedding banquet. But secondly, a divine beverage. You know, the beauty of John is that he never leaves us with a problem. It's such a beautiful display of how God in his grace continues to serve the church. He never does that, neither does the rest of the scripture. No, here John tells us how the great problem becomes the great blessing. It's glorious. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they obeyed. And then Jesus said, draw some of this water, or draw some out, and take it to the master of the feast. And again, they obeyed. And then John informs us that when the chief steward in charge of catering, tasted the drink. He tells us at that point that the water turned to wine. A miracle had been performed right there in front of all the guests. Christ, the Son of Mary, the incarnate one, able to do such things. And then the chief steward calls the bridegroom and complains to him about the quality of the new wine now served. And he says, this is not how you're supposed to do things. Don't you know? You got things backwards. You'd serve the good wine first. And then when everyone's joyful, their hearts have been lifted, then the lesser wine. Now, my dear friends, do you see what John is saying? Why did he include all that, that, that conversation about the butler? Why? Because John is saying Jesus Christ is the wine. In fact, the good wine, the reserved wine. Until now. Sometimes winemakers will hold back or reserve some wine from a particularly productive or good-tasting vintage. And it becomes then the higher quality wine that has been aged longer. This past, a couple months ago, we had the privilege of visiting a number of wineries in California. And you see reserved on some of these bottles. They hardly would let you touch it. Because it's, it's premium, it's vintage, it's been aged. And of course, it's more costly. And this is what we have here. 
in a prophecy made 700 years ago in Isaiah chapter 25 that we read earlier concerning the Messiah and the kingdom that he would usher in. Isaiah tells us, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food full of marrow and of aged wine well refined. You see? And this is not so much a commentary on just that wedding feast. No, John is telling us that it's a commentary on world history. And God's wonderful plan of salvation, he saw the problem, he saw the need, and he saved the best wine until now. Until now, the time when he sent his son, he sent the prophets before, but now he sends the very best, the vintage, the reserved wine, Christ Jesus. Christ comes now in the fullness of the Son of God. He comes and he ushers in the kingdom of his Father. And so as you read the Old Testament, the joy and the gladness of God's salvation, spoken here by Isaiah and the other prophets, so obviously then links The symbolism of wine and feasting that would be ultimately found in Jesus Christ and the salvation he would bring. This is how the Old Testament speaks of God's salvation. The cup that we just sung, the cup of blessing which we bless. That's the cup of wine that we'll taste at the table. It's not just wine because it's some drink. It's wine because it's rich. It's not grape juice. No, it is fermented. It's reserved. It is aged, well-aged wine. Because God has given us his very best, his son. As the Apostle Paul says, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. And so now as Jesus enters his his earthly ministry, he symbolically announces that the feast of the kingdom of his father has begun. And so what does he do at the very first miracle? He changes water into wine. And let the feast begin, Jesus is saying. A feast that is found in him And here he shows us then all the joy that has come in his salvation. It has arrived in him, the divine beverage. And notice too how John shows us then the abundance of life in Christ Jesus. These water vessels now fill, now filled with wine, are 20 to 30 gallons each. That's a lot of wine. Now that will make for a great feast, don't you think? It's so glorious. And the Bible, again, it's not silent on this topic. The Bible often speaks of wine as one of God's good gifts to 
his creatures. And yes, of course, wine can be abused, just like every good gift of God. But that doesn't mean we don't use the good gift as God has intended always then to direct our hearts and mind to Christ, the giver of every good thing. God has given his very best gift to us in Christ Jesus. And so then when we take the good things, especially when scripture points them out to us, like wine, it ought to draw our minds all the more to Christ Jesus himself. Psalm 104, there are many like this. The psalmist says, God gave wine to gladden the heart of man. Ecclesiastes 9, 7. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Ecclesiastes 10, 19. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life. Oh, my dear people, if God supplies us so abundantly with physical beverage, How much more glorious is the divine beverage? Our Lord Jesus, the one who has come down from heaven, taken to himself our human nature. He will not be less generous with his spiritual blessing, will he? By God's unsparing provision, Jesus is showing us here that the life he has come to give is not sparse, but it's abundant, abundant life in him. As he'll say later in John 10, verse 10, he'll say, I have come so that you might have life, and that abundantly. Abundant life in Christ. In fact, there is no life outside of Christ. If you're outside of Christ, you're dead and you're dying. But life in Christ is abundant, glorious. And this is the experience of life we enjoy in Christ Jesus. And again, it's like wine as it gets better with age. His gifts to us are sweeter and sweeter as we get older. We enjoy him more. As we advance in the years, his presence is more precious, more near and dear. And then what happens? The things of the earth, they pale in significance. The things of the earth hold less and less importance and less and less attraction to us. And this is by design, by the way. And God, in his goodness, in his grace to us, in his providential workings, he, as we get older, we can't do all the things we did when we were younger. And by his grace, then, there's this, there's this, this, Wonderful parallelism. They go together. That as we can't do all the physical things we once did, our hearts don't yearn as much for those physical things we once did. Why? Because we enjoy something. Someone. Much more. Our dear Savior. Can you imagine the kind of gift 
this must have been to this young couple at Cana of Galilee. Can you imagine what kind of gift it was for them and their family and the shame it kept them from experiencing? You see, when Christ gives us gifts, when he gives us himself, you remember how he explained, particularly in John's Gospel, that, that when he would leave to go back to his father, it would be better, not less, but better for his disciples and for the church. Why? Because he would pour out his spirit upon the church. Not in little teaspoons or tablespoons. No, he would pour out. He'd open heaven, the heavens. And as the prophets also spoke of, he would rend the heavens. And he would send down the blessing of heaven. He would luxuriate us with himself. And now as he sits on the throne of heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ lavishes us with every blessing in heaven. So the Apostle Paul can tell us in Ephesians 1 verse 3 that in Christ, God blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Has Paul missed out one blessing? Every spiritual blessing in Christ. Oh, my dear friends, when you come to faith in Christ Jesus, it's not that you incrementally get the blessings of Christ. No, when you come to faith in Christ Jesus, the Spirit of Christ gives you every blessing in Christ. Every blessing. All of Christ. The whole Christ. Because that's who God is. But John is intimating even more when John mentions that there were six water uh, stone jars here for Jewish purification in verse 6, he wants us to take note of the number. The number of six is a reference to incompleteness. It's one less than seven. And seven is the number of completeness or fullness or fulfillment. And what John is saying to us is that with the coming of the new wine, Christ has burst the limitations of the old covenant. He has burst the wineskins, and they are about to now expire. Do you remember how the writer of Hebrews puts this? In Hebrews 8, as he speaks of the new covenant now in Christ Jesus, and as he speaks of everything better in the new covenant, he tells us, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete? He goes on to tell us, is growing old and ready to fade away. When Jesus fills these water jars to the brim, to the brim, not just fill them, but to the brim. He is indicating to us that the time of the ceremonial purification is completely fulfilled. In him, the ritual has given away to the reality, Jesus Christ himself. And so Jesus' miracle served as a sign 
John calls us a sign. It served as a sign to Israel of the abundant life and the fulfillment Christ brings. The new wine of the messianic banquet. The new order, Jesus is saying, symbolized by vintage, reserved wine has come in Christ. So let me ask you, are you enjoying the new wine in Christ? Has your heart been purified by the wine of the new covenant in Christ's blood? Have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit, empowered by Him now to live new covenant life? Or in short, has the water turned into wine? Or is your life yet without Christ, still drinking water? Just going through the motions, being here this morning. But no life, no power, no gospel living. You can't. Just going through the motions. Lacking the power of the gospel and its ensuing blessings. Are you filling your life, we might say, quote unquote, with the wine of this world? Your work, your career, your pleasures, your hobbies, your collections, the collection of toys you have, perhaps even your spouse or your children or your grandchildren. Because if you are, you're actually taking God's good gifts and you're abusing them. That's what you're doing. Because every good gift of God is to turn us upward, to give thanks to the giver of the gift and bring glory and honor to the giver and not to the gift. And that's why your life, if you're without wine of the new covenant, your life is is still so disappointing. Because you've come to realize what Solomon has come to realize and every other person in in whose heart God has worked his grace that all the good gifts of this world can never bring satisfaction. And even the world knows that to some extent. No matter how aggressively you seek after them, they will not satisfy. Ask Solomon. Read Ecclesiastes And so, my dear friends, Christ, the new wine to gladden the heart of man, has come. He has come. Why would anyone wait any longer to drink the heavenly beverage in Christ Jesus? Why not come to him and enjoy the freedom that can only be found in Christ Jesus? The burden, freedom from the burden of sin, freedom from having a heart cleansed, never to never to condemn you any longer. As the prophets have said, you've tried the broken cisterns. 
of this world. They failed you time and time again. Oh, find your true joy and happiness in Christ alone. God's provision for the world. And so the human need, the divine beverage. And lastly, a glorious future. John tells us that this was the first sign of Jesus' signs and manifested his glory. Verse 11. And then it says the result was that the disciples believed in him. Now back in the first chapter, verse 50, when Jesus had this discussion with Nathanael, Jesus said to him in verse 50, he said, you will see greater things than these, Nathanael. And here now John is showing us in this miracle that what Jesus was saying to him has come to pass. They saw, Nathaniel included, they saw the glory of his person, the incarnate God, performing this miracle, wine into, or water into wine. They saw the glory of his power. Yes, in this man, the son of Mary, the son of Mary, The fullness of God was pleased to dwell, as Paul tells us. And the disciples believed in him. And this is the thrill of the good news of the gospel in Christ Jesus. It's all bound up, you see, with the joy of God's salvation. This is what's going on here. The disciples believed in him, and now they experienced, as they put their faith in Jesus, he's the Messiah that the prophets spoke of, the Son of the living God. And this was just a beginning. This was the first of his signs. And John tells us that in verse 11. Not just the first in a series of acts, But also, it was the opening act, we might say, of a greater work. The foundation, the pattern for everything that was yet to come. Wedding feast concludes John's record of the first week. We don't have time to go there this morning. Our time's up. But you look at chapter 1 and then come into chapter 2 and you'll notice how John so beautifully shows us the first week. And here now in verse 1 of John 2, he tells us this was now the third day since Jesus' calling of of, um, Philip and Nathanael. And that makes it, if you're counting, that makes it the seventh day of that first week. So what's John telling us? Well, he's linking, you see, the miracle with the Sabbath day, which itself is a picture of the coming age. In this way, John masterfully then teaches us that by Christ's life and ministry, he'll bring the church of the Old Covenant right through to its seventh day end. And more, in him, In himself, in his very person, John is going to show us that he fulfills all the types, all the shadows, all the rituals, all the sacrifices, everything of the Old Covenant. 
And he will bring his church into the new creation on the first day of the week. And John's so excited to get to John 20, verse 1. The resurrection of the Lord, the first day of the week. Well, Christ has come so that through faith in him, we might have entered into the Sabbath rest of God to enjoy the eternal messianic banquet, a feast of rich foods, of well-aged wine, vintage wine. And so for you to hear, John is saying, have you seen your own need? There was a great need. And by faith, have you drunken the divine beverage? Because if you haven't, it's not just that you've missed out on the reserved wine of abundant life in Christ. No, you are, as John will tell us, Jesus tells us in chapter 5, you are dead. You're dead. You're actually dead and dying. If you're not repenting of it, you will eternally die. That's what John is saying. But today is the day of salvation. Today is the Lord's day, the first day of the week, the day that the power of God has been poured out upon the church in the Spirit. It's the Lord's day. And it's this day that we enjoy then a foretaste of glory divine, a foretaste of our glorious future. We might say that today is rehearsal for the great wedding supper of the Lamb. The same apostle, the beloved disciple of Lord Jesus in the last book, Revelation 19, verse 9. He says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I hope every one of you will be there celebrating this great banquet. The preaching of God's word, the preaching of the gospel this morning is your invitation. You RSVP by believing in Jesus, either the first time or by renewal. The blessed incarnate Son of God, the heavenly beverage, our Savior himself. Amen. Father, we thank you for your grace, for the abundance of your provisions for us in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for this chief means of grace. And now as we come to enjoy the sacrament, we pray that our eyes would continually be fixed upon you, the giver of every good gift the giver of the very best gift, the heavenly beverage, Jesus Christ, our beloved Savior. Amen.